0: I think we have some folks in the parking lot listening on the radio. So I thought it would be kind of fun if we were all as quiet as we could be for a second and ask them to honk and see if we can hear them. Okay, So so let's all be really quiet. Now, parking lot people, will you honk a few times? Did did anybody hear it? I didn't hear it. Anyway, well, anyway. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 3 today. The problem has been presented, we've examined this for a few weeks, that there was very early on in the church church's life some discrimination happening between two cultures. And that complaint arises to the apostles. Uh, some widows are being neglected because they don't speak the local language, essentially. So the apostles' solution is to not uh, abandon the word, the ministry of the word, but rather to appoint additional men who can focus on the work of uh, of the church. And so in verse 3 of chapter 6 in Acts, it says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint them to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So I want to start talking or continue talking and, and really wrap up our understanding of this Connection that we see in Scripture repeatedly between the Word of God and good works, and uh, I'll, I'll I'll lay that pattern out a little bit more clearly here in a moment. But you know, uh, uh, when when you talk about good works, it's customary at some point in that conversation to give a properly reformed disclaimer about the nature of good works. And I was just thinking about that today and think or this week and thinking about how uh, how as, as best as I understand and as I read the scriptures, so good works are going to be celebrated in heaven because they're evidence of Christ's redeeming work activated in human beings. So good works will be celebrated in heaven. But I think the thing we forget is that good works will be lamented in hell. So, so no one in hell is going to be thinking, I wish I had done more good works. No one's going to be thinking that. What's What the reality of hell is, is that, is that there will be much time for examination over this, this tragic reality that for those that were not in Christ, they trusted in their good works as a means of salvation and being made right with God. So it's kind of this interesting way to think about it that, that good works will be celebrated in heaven. You know the the stuff that you have done as a follower of Jesus. You know God's going to say, "Well done, my good and faithful servant." I always joke that that's the closest God ever comes to lying when, you know, He looks at us and says, "Well done, my good and faithful servant." It's like, yeah, okay, thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so the good works will be celebrated in heaven because they were powered by Christ and Christ's righteousness. But they'll be lamented in hell because. The people there will be thinking, this is what I thought would get me out of here and into heaven. So that's the disclaimer. The disclaimer is, is that when we talk about good works, we're, we're talking about all of it under the umbrella of Christ's righteousness, both powering those good works from beginning to end. So that's the disclaimer on <laughs> good works. The only true good work are those that God begins, God sustains, And God causes to endure to the end. That's kind of the summary statement of what makes a good work a good work. The ones that God does, the one that God sustains, and the one that God completes. So last week we did a little bit of work establishing this sort of universal rhythm that we see throughout all of the world. And that is God speaks and stuff responds to his word. And that's work. So there's this connection between the word of God and the working that happens as a result. And so God says to creation, let there be light. That's his word going forth. And then action takes place. Light occurs. That's the work of God being accomplished in response to his word. Uh, Jesus says to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. His word goes out. Lazarus gets up from the dead and comes forth. He does a good work in response to the word of Jesus. So there's this pattern that we see in every level of creation in which God's work is both initiating and sustaining and finishing. God's word is initiating and, and, and sustaining and finishing all these works. But the best example that I could think of to kind of show you this pattern is really you. If you're a follower of Jesus. You are the consequence of God's word going forth to your soul that was dead in sins and trespasses. And much like when Jesus said to Lazarus, come forth, God issued his, uh, his effectual call to your dead soul and caused you to be raised in newness of life. And you being Christ's, you being aware of Christ, you being born again— That's the work of God that happens in response to uh, the Word of God. So, in many respects, the Bible just says, like, all the good stuff you do as a follower of Jesus is sort of like an echo of that initial come forth call. You know, all of the good works that we wind up doing are just sort of echoes of the original statement by Christ to our souls be to be alive. Arise, O oh sleeper, awake from the dead and the light will shine on you. And like all of the stuff we do, whether that's, you know, praying for our neighbor or or stopping when someone's, you know, struggling in our church and, and caring for them, whatever whatever the work is, it's just really almost like an echo that, 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 that was the original command of God working its way out into the universe. And you can think about that, you know, if you imagine yourself in some kind of canyon country in Arizona or you know, Wyoming has some pretty cool canyons, and you're in this sort of canyon country where it just goes forever. These deep gorges, and you know, can you imagine like uh, standing at the front end of this, the beginning of this canyon, and just speaking a word, and then the sound waves travel down this canyon, and every uh, inch they get to, the canyon just just uh, just blooms with life, and and suddenly a dead rock kind of you know canyon becomes you know just blooming with life. And the sound wave travels further down the canyon and more green and more green and more verdancy, and so on and so forth. And so like for miles and miles, the sound wave of this single word just keeps going, 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 going. And more life and more life and more life. And that's how I would actually describe what I think the Bible says about all that's happened since Christ came. Is his initial incarnation. And I think about it this way. Jesus is the word of God. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. Jesus is the Word of God who has accomplished the work of God. And so there was this, this, this single instance. God becomes man, lives perfectly, loves perfectly, dies horrifically, is raised from the dead, and ascends to rule over all things. That's the initial little voice at the beginning of the canyon. And the canyon is the whole world. And that one thing, think about it this way. What does God coming in the flesh, living perfectly, loving perfectly, dying horrifically, and raising from the dead, what does that buy you? Like, what does that do? Well, I don't think you could, you could overestimate what that accomplishes. It changes everything, right? Everything. So when the word goes into the work of God, like, this, this pattern that we see of word and work, it's just, it's just tremendous, So you are a great example of what I'm trying to show you, and that is the connection between the word of God and the work of God. Now, I had a nice conversation with a church member this week about Acts 5 and 6, and he left, I think maybe last week's sermon, somewhere around that time, thinking about, you know, I feel like Acts 6, Acts 5 and 6, is just kind of this sharp turn, like why are we, why are we here? And as a good instinct, it's a good instinct to ask those sorts of questions when you're reading uh, stories in the Bible. And he was trying to figure that out, and he came up with the following idea. He thought that in Acts 5, the devil attempts to stop the proclamation of the gospel through overt persecution. So, this is where the apostles, or Peter and John, are brought before the council, and they're charged strictly to not speak in that name. So this is an overt attempt to stop the proclamation of Jesus into the world. But that didn't work because they just said, well, you know, uh, you determine for yourselves whether it's better to obey God than man. But we must speak of what we have seen and heard. So the, the first attempt is like a sort of direct assault on the problem. The devil wants the word of God to stop. And so there's a direct assault on that, and it doesn't work. The apostles are resilient to that test. Well, what's what's Acts six? What's happening in Acts six? Well, it's a sneak attack. So if we can't threaten you enough to keep you from speaking the word of God, maybe we can distract you with a sense of duty toward other things. Maybe we can, maybe, maybe that the scheme of the devil at work in act six is I tried to threaten them. That didn't work. Maybe I just give them a bunch of good things to do. Maybe that'll work. Well, it's worked on me. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's ever worked on you. It's worked on me like a lot. Like here's the, here's the, the trick. This is a good trick. Um, as far as devil tricks go, uh, you know, it's a good trick. Like, What's going on here is, you know, did you, do you remember Looney Tunes and the, the lady, do you remember the lady who had Tweety Bird, the, the old lady that had Tweety Bird? Okay, that's my image of the widows in the Bible. All right, so, so, so God puts that lady, that sweet lady, in front of Peter with the walker with the, you know, and, 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 and like the, the, the invitation is simply this, Peter. Just stop proclaiming the word a little bit and like, love this lady, care for this lady. Like, why wouldn't you want to do that? That's the second trick uh, in this conversation I was having with this guy. Like, that's the second trick. The first trick is, you know, point a gun at Peter and say, hey, you've got to stop preaching. Peter says, no, I'm not going to stop. The next trick is, instead of a gun, let's put like a sweet old Hellenist widow in front of him and say, don't you care about me? And that's like that kind of trick works on most of us. Most of the time, God, God often derails our delight in his word, our priority in his word by uh, Satan often does that derails us by just giving us like good stuff to do. Important stuff to do, meaningful stuff to do. And it's really a, a quite effective trick, so I really like that explanation a lot. And when he was explaining, he's kind of sharing. I said, "Well, what do you make of Ananias and Sapphira? What's going on there?" He's like, "I don't know. I haven't been able to, you know, integrate that." So I went home, and this is how, this is how good conversations work. Because you know, you, 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 one person goes so far with a, a thought, and then they hand it off to someone else, and someone else thinks about it a little bit, and you know, you're outsourcing your. Your brain, it's a beautiful thing. And so I went home and I started thinking, okay, I'm going to take what he says and I'm going to say, that's, I think that's probably very likely. Uh, now, what do we do with the Ananias and Sapphira? Because that's also kind of a weird moment in the, in the narrative. And here's what I came up with. It's completely unoriginal. It's just the same idea, but it's simply to say that Satan is both interested in causing the church to abandon the word and also interested in causing the church to abandon good works, so that the Ananias and Sapphira thing was just another. So, if when in doubt, just blame it on the devil, right? Like you know, uh, not really. But but I, Ananias and Sapphira was just an, an uh, was just an effort to contaminate the goodness of good works, and that this discrimination we see in Acts six is the same thing. It's an effort to contaminate good works. So. Satan's kind of really, you know, assuming this is all right. Either way, the church is in quite a pickle in this moment. They're really being invited to either abandon the word in favor of good works. By the way, good works, apart from the word, there's a pattern in the Bible for that, and it's it's the manna story. So a good idea isn't a good idea unless it's God's idea. And if you start doing good works just because you think you should apart from the word of God, they go rotten, right? That's, that's the whole storing up manna too long kind of idea. So the, the scheme, it seems, in Acts 5 and 6 is maybe we can get the church to abandon the proclamation of the word of God, the priority of the word of God, in favor of good works, which is brilliant because the good works eventually go rotten and they're not good anymore, and pretty soon we've you know we've we've got all sorts of weirdness going on in the name of good works. Well that's that's step 1. Step 2 is maybe instead of that we could just make their faith dead and make them not focus on good works at all. So there's really this <laughs> you know like I said it's a pretty clever trick. So on the one hand like we're going to tempt them to stop doing good works. On the other hand we're going to tempt them to stop pursuing the word and it's like you're in this catch-22 it's like what do you do basically every choice before you appears to be the wrong one there's a third thing i think is happening here and that is what is so, so if i were to ask you what is the fundamental good work of a local church well my understanding of that would be that the fundamental good work of a local church is unity Everything else comes out of that. But our basic job is to love one another and to walk together. And by this, Jesus says, all men will know that you're my disciples. So now, I think, now I'm thinking, well, gosh, you know, the devil's to, you know, trying to get us to choose between word and works. And now he's trying, he's, he's, he's threatening the very thing that is the fundamental work. And the fundamental work, the fundamental good work of the local church is unity. I think the fundamental work of a family is unity between you know the father, the mother, and the the, the husband and the wife. You know, if you don't have that, you don't have anything else. So Satan's really, really working overtime here. Uh, something's working overtime here. Uh, Ephesians four. I saw someone use this passage the other day in a completely inappropriate way. But I want you to look at this passage. I think we've got the slide for it. Uh, Ephesians four eleven through 14. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Friends, uh, I, I don't know if it's just me or if you would say that you recognize this as well. I believe I have been under more spiritual attack lately than in a very long time. When Paul talks about being tossed to and fro, one of the things he's saying is this sort of unsteadiness, this sort of, you know, uh, this sort of just like. Would it be reasonable to say that the news cycle ha- is provoking people to flail around like like they're having a seizure? Like, would would it be re- like emotionally? Would it be reasonable to say that there's some tossing? to and fro happening as we examine the news cycle. Well, it's interesting because you don't have to be on the left or the right. If you're on the left, you're going to say, this is all a right-wing conspiracy. If you're on the right, you're going to say, this is all a left-wing conspiracy. But we would say, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We would say, yeah, we do think there's a conspiracy, but we're even crazier than both of you. We think it's the devil. It's like, like we're, we're the ultimate conspiracy theorists. We believe in a real devil. So what do you, I mean, so this, this, this passage is quite interesting because, honestly, they really do look trapped. And you lose the tension because you already know the solution, but you've got to kind of r- imagine yourself in the situation without the solution. And you're like, okay, if I turn left, I've abandoned works. If I turn right, I've abandoned the word. Oh, and by the way, there's basically no way for me to get out of this without splitting the church. And you're just like... <laughs> okay, well, what do you do now? Uh, I, I've examined, uh, for me personally, that feeling of having no real way out. If so, so one of my great sins is to forget about the devil. That's one of my great failings. I'll 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 flounder around for days on a problem before I remember that I. I believe that there is an enemy of my soul at work seeking to, you know, steal, kill, and destroy. Like, it takes me a long time to get to devil. Uh, some of you go there first. I, I, it takes me too long to get there. As I've examined that in myself, I'm like, well, wh- what are the tells? Do I have a tell? Can I tell? Is there something that would signal to me, this is probably the devil? And here's where I've where I found this moment where you think there is no Possible solution that actually will work. This this moment of, um, you know, you, you might you might completely understand the problem, but this moment where you think there's just no way out. That there, there, there's no way out that's go, not going to dishonor Christ or dis. You know, there's there's just no way out of this. That to me, if I were to say that the, the devil's schemes has a particular smell or vibe. I would say, when you start thinking that about something, let's expand the realm of possibility. It's not just you and the person you're in conflict with, or it's not just you in this situation society, society. Something else is happening. That particular communication is right in line with what Dante wrote in the Divine Comedy, where he, he essentially puts a sign over hell, as he describes hell, and the sign says... Abandon all hope, all who enter here. That is the, that's the sulfur. Those are sulfuric words. Those are satanic words. Abandon all hope. That is just not an option for the people who believe that the world came into being by the spoken word of God. Because if he can say, let there be light, and like the sun appears, then I think he could say, let there be light in your home or in our church, and we're good. So, uh, that moment of hopelessness, to me, has been the way I've said, okay, that's, I think, as I try to be more sensitive to the reality of spiritual warfare, when I begin thinking, there's just no way out of this, that's pretty likely not just me. Okay, so, what, well, what is the way out? How, how does this solution arrive? Now, I will be talking about deacons here in a moment, but I actually want to just talk about, Suppose you find yourself in a situation where uh, (laughs) you get to the end of the maze and realize you've been played with for (laughs) for the last couple months. You have been uh, enticed. You have been ensnared. You have been trapped. You have been deceived. You have been attacked. And you get to the end and you're like, oh, my goodness. Well, I don't see any way out of this. I've been cornered. And if I go to the left... I'm toast, and if I go to the right, I'm toast, and what do I do? Well, there's a lot that I won't be talking about, but I I just want to point to two things that happen in this text because that's where the apostles find themselves. They can either abandon the word or abandon works, and there's there's pretty much no way that unity is kept intact. So they find themselves in that particular position, and here's two things, just two things that I think are helpful when you feel trapped and don't know what to do and you think maybe... The devil's been playing you like a cat plays a mouse. Okay, number one, shine the light. What do I mean by shine the light? Well, this problem has to have a name. This problem has to be identified. It, it doesn't necessarily need to be super precise to begin with, but there needs to be a, an actual an- announcing, hey, this I'm not okay. This isn't okay. In this passage... One of the great graces of this passage that gets neglected is that the congregation felt capable of complaining. So the first mark of grace in this passage is a complaint arose. And you say, well, how can a complaint arising be a means of grace? Well, because honestly, friends, I've spent 20 years in ministry watching not complaints, not arose, and, I, and most of the chapters of the hardest chapters of my life begin, a complaint didn't arise. A complaint festered. <laughs> that's, where, that's where most of the worst experiences of my life begin, is, is not when someone in the church complains, but when someone in the church doesn't complain. That's when most. So, so there's this tremendous grace of just saying, uh, hey, I don't think this is okay. Now, how does that apply in your life? you know god honors this 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 basic pattern of grateful lamenting so if i were going to tell you well what do you do when you're not happy with something you need to have the faith to say to god i'm not happy with this having the faith to say that to god means that you believe that god cares that you you believe that God is capable of fixing it and that you believe like that that you should be talking to him about it. So so a lament is full of faith. And I would say that you need to add gratitude to that because that's the way that you get more faith. So say to God, you know, you have you have taken care of me many times, but I don't feel like you are right now. That's perfect grateful lament. You're you're you're, you're tre- teaching yourself how to shine the light on a particular issue. So shine a light and then share the load. This is the real innovation of the office of deacon. And it just says, you know, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of word. Usually when we find ourselves in this place that we're totally cornered, what needs to happen is somebody else needs to be brought in. We need to ask for help. We need to ask someone to share our burden. We need to ask someone to share our load. But I will tell you this, when you ask someone to carry part of the burden, you can't keep giving them pointers on how they have chosen to carry your part of the burden. You know, people have different approaches to fixing things, and they're all like, there's lots of good ways to skin a cat. Sorry, don't trigger anybody there. But, but, uh, but, but, you know, if, if you, you, there's this thing of like, I need help, good. If you really do, you'll let me help you in a way that, like, that I think I can help you and not in the way that you think I should help you. Like, that sharing the load means actually giving people permission to, to, to solve their slice of the problem their unique way. And if you start micromanaging the way people help you, then you won't find many people really willing to help you and it's not because they're bitter or because they're disappointed. It's because they don't know how to do the thing your way. They know how to do it their way. So sharing the load is, is huge. And a lot of pastors, myself included, get super used to just, you know, piling another backpack of rocks on the on my back and just saying, well, there's another, another thing for me to carry, and I'll just carry it. And by the way, there's all sorts of sinful self-talk going on during that kind of time and so on and so forth. And But but one of the reasons that pastors, or honest, quite honestly, you know, ladies, this is fairly common in, in marriages when you ask for, sorry, when you ask for help uh, from your husband, but you want him to help you exactly the way that you had envisioned he would help you, you know, and then you're... <laughs> and then, and then, and then you're, you're sort of like, why isn't he helping me? Well, because he's not a girl. Like, <laughs> anyway, letting people help you the way that God built them to help you is key to sharing the load. So shine the light and share the load. And that gets us to deacons. That's what deacons do. That's the basic task of a deacon is to shine the light and share the load. And what do I mean by shine the light? Deacons help elders see problems they don't see. They help them see um, concerns in the congregation that they wouldn't normally see. I personally think that I'm the most approachable human in the world and you should just come talk to me. But not everybody feels comfortable going to the pastor of a church and saying, Hey, here's a concern I have. And, but they would feel more comfortable doing that with their community group leader or so on and so forth. So one of the things God in his wisdom has done with the creation of this deaconate office is he's allowed there to be another place in the government of a church in which problems can be you know, spoken of and, and, and discussed and hopefully even seen in advance before anyone else sees them. So that's one of the things deacons do. And that's why I think one of the reasons why uh, Peter, Peter says, uh, the apostles say, make sure he has good a good reputation, make him a good a man of good repute. Why would his reputation matter here? Well, because the deacon needs to be able to be seen by the congregation and the elders as someone who is reasonable, as someone who like is capable relationally of navigating all of these waters and so on and so forth. The elders need to trust these men. And the congregation needs to be able to trust these men. And, and what you do when you're establishing trust is you look at reputation. And you essentially say, like, is this a person of good repute? And so that's number one. Uh, they shine the light, and then they share the load. The apostles also say that the, the, these deacons need to be full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. Has anyone read the book of Proverbs recently? Anybody? one of the really interesting things that happens in the book of Proverbs is that you are essentially told pretty clearly, pretty consistently that the Holy spirit and wisdom are the same thing. You're essentially invited into seeing wisdom almost like a person as the Holy spirit. And so when, when they say full of the Holy spirit and wisdom and wisdom, you know, they're almost the same thing. Why the, why the qualification, why the addition of wisdom, you know, of the Holy Spirit in wisdom. Why, why add that? Wisdom is, is the fluency of God's two books. God has written two books. One's the Bible, and that's perfect and inspired in this very unique way. And then He's written the book of creation. And, and that book is it's kind of a mess. It's beautiful, it's wonderful, but it's kind of a mess. Wisdom is the ability to look at the world through the lens of the Word and understand what to do about it all. Wisdom is sort of like uh, the ability to say, this is what God has created, and now let me tell you what we're supposed to do with what God's created. So in the same way that deacons kind of exist to shine the light on potential issues, deacons also exist to share the load because what what they're supposed to be is full of the Spirit and full of wisdom and have some capacity to kind of arrive at, Godly helpful solutions and that's that's key, I think, because what we would mean if if that's true is is that how a pastor relates to a deacon is by not micromanaging how he carries the load you know that that no no, no, you know you i we got into this me being convinced that you're a man of good reputation and that you have wisdom, so you figure out how to carry the load, and if you have questions i'm happy to walk with you, but i'm not going to Criticize the way you choose to carry this load. It's going to be your deal. So that's sort of the the basic um, the the basic idea we have for deacons uh, presented over three weeks. That that the word is so important. We need people that focus mostly on that. Works are so important that we need people to focus mostly on that. And that these two church offices coexist. Uh, so that that beautiful pattern that exists all throughout Scripture can exist in the local church. Now, I want to give you some really hyper-practical things about where we are. So uh, we had presented some names uh, what feels like seven years ago. I think it was about six months ago uh, <laughs> uh, to you. And so today we're, we're, you know, we, we asked you to, to give your feedback and so on and so forth. So today we are presenting uh, four guys to you that will be the first Deacons in this new deaconate ministry, uh, that would be uh, Michael Dowdy, Brian Gilley, Noah Maher, and John Hegarty. And uh, I just want to say that one of the things that we see in the First Timothy three passage is let them be tested first. And uh, I, we have been we have been working. Seth and I have been working with them since last about this time last year, something like that. Summer of last year, we had the offer from someone to buy our building. And we brought those guys in at that step and have walked with them through that issue. We walked with them through the COVID issue and, uh, and many, many other issues. So there is, there's already been a lot of work that's happened with that group. So a lot of time has been devoted already. Thank you, men, for, for the time you devoted and the prayer you devoted. I also want to anticipate a few questions. One of the first questions I, I think comes up in this is, what about women deacons? Well, so let me say three things that, that are about women deacons. First of all, I believe the Bible teaches that there should be women deacons. My only suggestion is they're routinely, traditionally called deaconesses, and I think they should be deaconettes. But other than that, <laughs> other than that, <laughs> uh, no, uh, I think the Bible teaches that there, there are women deacons, and I just would like the name to change. But anyway... Uh, but I think also the Bible also teaches uh, what, what most people would consider our position as a church to be rather hard complementarianism. And so we really do emphasize uh, Paul's teaching. Uh, we believe Paul's teaching to be literal and applicable to us, that women should not have authority, exercise authority over a man, and we think that not because women aren't awesome because they are but just because there's a structure that God has imprinted on creation that we're trying to honor through that conviction. So we believe that women should be deacons. We believe in complementarianism. We also believe deacons should have some official status. And like I said last week, we don't think deacons are just just a deacon. We think there's something elevated about this office. So we believe those three things. Now how do we make those three things work? That's what we're working on right now. So to be continued, I guess is what I would say. But we do believe that women should be serving in the church as deacons. Will we add more? Absolutely we'll add more. And we would always be welcome, open to hearing your suggestions. So uh, those those are two questions. Maybe the third question is, like, what does this practically mean? Well, honestly, maybe the way that I could tell you, I could explain it that you might get is, I don't know. Eight months ago, ten months ago, we stopped. Seth and I stopped meeting monthly, just as elders, and we started meeting as elders and deacons together. And so, most of what we were dealing with and thinking about prior to that moment, as as elders, now we've opened up to elders and deacons. Meaning, it's a pretty big deal. It really is. And and we're we are we are including them in a lot of questions. What's the distinction then? This is the, one that, this is the question we started out with when we started this process. What's the distinction between a deacon and an elder? If they're, not, if they're just the same thing, if they're doing the same thing, what's the distinction? Well, I've said the distinction, I think, is the word and the work, and the word is primary, and the work is secondary. But let me say it another way. I think that the basic distinction between an elder and a deacon is the elder has been invested with accountability and authority before God for the state of the souls of the congregation. And so, like, I'm going to have to stand before God and answer for the state of your souls in some way that's frightening me when I look out. No. Uh, (laughs) uh, So what we've said when we've talked about elders and deacons is just that if if there is a moment in which there is any disagreement, you know, the elders have to make that final call. But uh, elders would... You know, this system that we're setting up, we would be really stupid to do often some sort of veto on what the deacons are saying, because that's not, the, that's not why we're setting this system up. So the the basic difference, if you were to ask, what's the basic difference functionally between an elder and a deacon? I think I would say, functionally, for us, the m- basic difference is is that when the decision finally has to be made, that's left to the elder body. So... I am so thankful for your patience for three weeks to sit through something that may or may not feel like it applies to you entirely. Let me dismiss this in prayer and uh, and move on with the service. Gracious God, we praise your holy name for your faithfulness and care for your church. God, I've, I've heard someone describe uh, the work of the